0: The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au Awesome. Well, if you want to open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1, we are starting a new series this morning in the book of Exodus, uh, which um, will be be going up until around Easter time, Lord willing. Um, If you're relatively new to LCC, walking through books of the Bible is what we like to do. We like to preach this way. We like to learn this way, letting God's word set the agenda for us and letting God speak to us through his word as we study it. And so the plan, like I said, at this stage, Lord willing, is to, uh, is to stay in the book of Exodus until around Easter time. Uh, and then we're going to have a short Easter series, and then after that we'll see what comes after that. Um, but the question that we might ask is, why are we studying the book of Exodus? Why would we look at a book like this? Exodus details for us the story of God rescuing his people out of slavery in Egypt. And it's the beginning of his deliverance of them to the promised land, the land of Canaan. And if you read through the Bible, one of the things that I notice all the time, and I've actually started making note of this every time I read this in the Old Testament, is that God gets so much mileage out of what he does here in Exodus. Like, if you're reading through the Old Testament, you see so often, again and again, God describing himself in this way. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. It happens over and over again. It's a significant event. These events were crucial to the forming forming of God's people, the nation of Israel. And these events form a blueprint or a, or a, um, a template for the salvation of God's people now through Jesus Christ. So in the same way that God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, God continues to rescue his people from sin. And so there is so much that we can learn from the book of Exodus. There is so much that we can understand um, about our own salvation, about who our God is and how he saves us from the book of Exodus. And so um, we're going to be spending the next seven or so weeks looking at that. We might have some guest speakers as we go, which would be really great. And even though he was down two sets and was trailing two games to three, and was even at one stage losing that game, Love 40... Rafael Nadal fired back and gained a foothold in the match. He went on to win the next three sets and became the first person ever to win 21 Grand Slams. This week has been a big week in the the world of tennis. Rafael Nadal became arguably one of the, or if not the greatest tennis player of all time, winning his 21st Grand Slam. He won the Australian Open on Sunday night. Now, I didn't actually watch the game. I just watched about five minutes of it. I forgot it was on, saw it. I didn't have the patience to stay up all night. I, would have been asleep. I was asleep by about 8.30 that night anyway, so I didn't watch the whole thing. But it was a big uh, event in the world of tennis. But there's a problem with the story that I just told. And the English teachers among us would have picked up on it. Maybe Kat would have picked up on it. I started the story with the word and... Did anybody realize that? Like, it felt weird. Did anybody like, oh, that kind of... Did I black out for like 10 seconds there and miss the first part of that sentence? Like, you can start a sentence with the word and, I think. Maybe, I'm not sure. I'm looking at cat for confirmation. No, yes, I don't worry about it. It's all good. (laughs) But starting a whole story, an entire story with the word and, that's outrageous. It makes us feel like, oh, like I've missed out on something. makes us feel like we've been plonked into the middle of a story at some stage. The reason why I started the story that way is because the book of Exodus begins with the word and. It makes us feel like the story has already begun, like we're being plonked halfway through the story at some stage. And the reason is, that's exactly what's happening. You see, Exodus is not a book that we should read in isolation from the rest of the Bible. Exodus could be regarded even as chapter 2 of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. It begins with this word end because it's it's helping us understand that we're not reading a story, we're not hearing a story that that begins with Exodus. We're reading a story that began in the book of Genesis. See, uh, in 2019, we actually started looking at The book of Genesis. We we, we looked at the story of Joseph in the last 13 chapters of Genesis. I'm not sure if you were here with us for that, Uh, but that was, I don't know if you remember that, but that was, first of all, that only feels like a couple of months ago. I'm not sure if if some of you were here for that. That was three years ago. Isn't that crazy that that was, 2019 was three years ago? In many ways, it feels like nothing, but also ages as well. Uh, But we looked at the book of Genesis. We looked at the story of Joseph, the last 13 chapters of Genesis. And if you remember there, uh, the story of Joseph does have this kind on a sense of resolution, and yet the story of Genesis doesn't really seem like it's fully resolved, and we were looking at that a little bit with our Old Testament series last year. See, if you remember, the story of the Bible is this, that God created his people to live under his blessing in his place, to, to live uh, with him. Uh, he created a, a family of God to dwell in the land that he created for them under his rule and care and under his protection, that's how Genesis begins. But then sin got us off track and fractured our relationship with God. But God promised that a descendant of Adam and Eve would have come along one day and that descendant would crush the head of Satan at the cost of that descendant's life. That's what is promised to us in Genesis chapter 3. And that, As he crushed the head of, this, of, of Satan, he would restore God's people back to relationship with him. And as you follow the story of Genesis, you'll see the story, these, these promises of God unfold to a man named Abraham. Whereas in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, God comes to Abraham and promises him that through him, through his descendants, he's going to restore what he created. He's going to restore the created order. He's going to bring people back into a relationship with him. They're going to live under his rule, under his blessing, as his people. And Abraham's descendants are going to multiply. They're going to grow throughout all of the earth. And so Exodus, the story of Exodus is the story of God's people, the promised nation from the descendants of Abraham being freed from slavery. But we must understand that it's far more than just being freed from slavery. It's freedom to worship and glorify God. And that is a crucial part of the story of Exodus. Like if you miss that, you'll miss the entire story. Uh, you might have seen The Prince of Egypt, the, the Disney movie that came out years ago. Um, I love that movie, p- personally, but like, I love that movie. I would give it a 10 out of 10 in terms of cast, but pro- probably about a 6 out of 10 in terms of biblical accuracy. Like, it, gives a, it get a lot, gets a lot of things right, but one of the things it misses is this. It's not just freedom from slavery that God won for his people. It's actually freedom to worship and glorify God, and that is crucial, Philip Ryken, a theologian, summarizes the story of Exodus with these four simple words: Saved for God's glory. If you were trying to remember what the story of Exodus is, it is that God saved his people for his glory. God freed his people so that they would worship him. And that is crucial for understanding who God is. That is crucial for understanding the story of Exodus. You see, God stands alone at the apex of existence. God is the ultimate center of the entire universe. God is infinite in power. He is infinite in wisdom. He is infinite in His presence. And you and I, we were created to glorify God. We were created to worship God. And when we do find ourselves worshiping God, we find ourselves doing the very thing that we were created to do. Which means when we do glorify God, we find out how deep and how great and how big our joy can get. And when we don't glorify God, when we instead glorify ourselves, we soon discover how shallow our joy is and how shallow the joy is in the things around us because we're going against the grain of what God created us to do. There is simply nothing better for us in this life than to glorify God. It is good for us to do that. And this is why the story of Exodus is not just story, a story of, about freedom from slavery because that would not be enough. We need more than that. It's freedom to worship, freedom to serve, freedom to glorify God. That's the story of Exodus. That's what we're looking at for the next seven weeks or so. So let's get into chapter one. And we're only looking at chapter one today, which is only going to take us a little way into this wild and wonderful story. But this opening chapter sets the scene for us. Now, here's my main point for today. If you're taking notes, my main point is this. God loves you, and he wants you to know that his timing is perfect, and you can trust him with everything. God loves you, and he wants you to know that his timing is perfect, and you can trust him with everything. The beginning few verses dovetail neatly into, from Genesis. The family of Abraham were not in the land that God promised them. But actually, had they had left their land in Canaan, and they were in the land of Egypt. It says from verse 1, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Each came with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The total number of Jacob's descendants was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. So that summarizes maybe the last 13 chapters of Genesis, and that helps us understand that this is a continuation of the story in Genesis. And if you want to go ahead this afternoon and read the last 13 chapters of Genesis, it might take you a couple of hours, but it is a riveting read. It is one of those things you look at and you're like, wow, God's people are a mess. They are broken, busted up people, and that gives us encouragement because we're a mess, right? Like, our lives are messed up. This is the family that God had made promises to about the land of Canaan. And so we should straight away wonder when we start reading the book of Exodus, what are God's people still doing in Egypt? Why are they still there? The story of Exodus takes place around 400 years after Genesis. What are they still doing in Egypt? Maybe they got comfortable, maybe they just got used to the way things were, like everything was kind of provided for them, it was just what they had known. God had, of course, provided for his people in Egypt, but it was never God's plan for them to stay in Egypt. It was a plan for them to leave Egypt. And so straight off the bat, there is tension in this story. God's people are not where they should be. However, as we read the story, we can start to feel that this tension is about to break. In verse 6 it says uh, that Joseph and all of his brothers and all that generation eventually died. Now, The death of that generation, of Joseph and all of his brothers and that generation, and then the next generation after them, the the death of that generation, and then the death of the next generation after them and every subsequent generation for the next 400 years likely would have created a sense of doubt about God's faithfulness towards his people. Like it's been 400 years. Where is God going with this? You see, you and I, we have the advantage of knowing how the story turns out. Or we can just turn the page and we can find out. But for these people, it was one day at a time, year after year, decades, centuries even, waiting for God to come through on his promises to bring his people out of the land of Egypt and into the land of Canaan, into the promised land. And so I wonder if there was a sense of doubt, if, as if, if the shade was being cast over God's promises, the shade was being cast over God's faithfulness. Was God ever going to come through and do what he said he was going to do? Well, in reply to that shade and in reply to that doubt, we are told that the people of God were fruitful and began to multiply. And that there is actually part of the promise that God made to Abraham that his descendants would be more than the stars in the sky. It's part of the promise being fulfilled. And as you read that there in verse 7, you can't escape the incredible emphasis that is placed on how great the, the number of people were in the people of Israel. It says the five times, but the Israelites were one fruitful two increased rapidly three multiplied and four became extremely numerous so that five the land was filled with them like any of those descriptions would have given us the same general idea they just became lots they they, they, lots of them started to appear they multiplied right five different ways Moses, our writer, gives this emphasis. These people, they grew rapidly. This is a sign of God's promise, a sign that God is fulfilling his promises. All three of these occasions, they come after times of, of difficulty, times where, when there might be doubt over God's promises. And all three of these occasions give the, the people, give us hope that God is actually faithful. Three times it's going to mention in this chapter that God that these are God's people multiplied, that they were fruitful. And it gives us hope. I wonder if you've ever questioned the faithfulness of God. Or maybe I shouldn't say if, but just when. (laughs) When have we questioned the faithfulness of God to come through on something? Maybe it's a prayer that has been unanswered, or maybe it's silence when we've been crying out to God. Maybe the plans that we've had for our future have been ripped out from under our feet, or maybe it wasn't that drastic. Maybe the plans for our future just kind of fizzled. The good news that we need to hear is that God's timing is perfect. It can be so hard to see the purposes of God in what feels like a delay, what feels like sometimes a denial of the things that we hope for, good things even. But God's timing is perfect, and it is always the case that we can look back at his faithfulness towards us and praise him for that. Back to our story, the situation for the Israelites wasn't great, but it then begins to deteriorate. It goes from bad to worse rapidly. A new Pharaoh comes to power, and this Pharaoh did not know Joseph. Now that's an incredibly important detail and it's quite surprising that this pharaoh did not know who Joseph was. Joseph, if we read back in Genesis, Joseph had not only saved Egypt through his his God-given wisdom, he not only saved Egypt from this famine, he actually got Egypt into a really strong economic position throughout the famine. So the fact that Egypt, there's this pharaoh who has no idea who Joseph is, is somewhat surprising to us. And so a really crucial part of the story. But he was nowhere to be found in this king's knowledge. So from verse 9, it says that he said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let's deal, sh- let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further. And when war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramesses as supply cities for Pharaoh. The king saw that the great numbers of Israel were a real threat to, his, to their way of life, and so he assigned these taskmasters, these people, to rule over them and make life difficult for them. Verse 13, it says, They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and mortar and in all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. It's a picture of struggle. It's a picture of pain and bitterness. It's a dire situation. The people of Israel are thrust into slavery without much of a warning and their lives become difficult as this incredible labor is enforced upon them, imposed ruthlessly on them. Once again, doubt. Once again, shade being cast over the faithfulness of God. Is he going to come through for us? Well, in the midst of that, we read verse 12, which holds out again that same promise, that same hope that God is going to fulfill his promises. It says, But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. That verse there is situated somewhat ironically against verse 10. Verse 10 says, it's Pharaoh saying, Let's deal shrewdly with them. Let's oppress them so that they stop multiplying. Verse 12 says, they were oppressed, so they continued to multiply. It's a reminder to us that God always wins. God can't be stopped. His plans always succeed. God never fails, and he sustains his people for his glory. God sustains his people. God sustains you and I. God holds on to us. This means that we can trust him with absolutely everything. Whatever we are coming up against in this life, God will sustain us. We need to know that God was at work then to establish his people then and God is continuing to establish his people now. God can be trusted. You might hear about the decline of the church in our nation at the moment or around the world at the moment that we need to remember and be rest assured that God will sustain his people. The tides of the decades and the waves of of opposition will continue to crash against God, our rock. And they will come and they will make a big splash and a hell of a noise. But then they will retreat, having not made a single dent, going away to plan their next assault. But God, our rock, will remain and those who are in the Lord, those who are in Christ Jesus, are safe. I don't know, know if you guys think about it in these terms. But God's people have been around for a long time. And we're God's people here today, right? And this is God's people who we're reading about thousands of years ago, right? Now, I haven't checked this against the history books, but I don't know of another institution that has been around as long as God's people. God's church was in existence before the Federation of Australia before the United States of America, before the United Kingdom, like I don't know another kingdom, another empire, I don't know of another institution that has outlasted God's people. God's church will stand at the grave of empires. God's church will stand at the grave of societies. God's church will stand at the gravesite of institutions and ideologies. And we'll stand there with God going... Good try. Have another crack. Or come and join us. Come and join God's people. God sustains his people. God is at work in creating our people. And we see this next wave in our text as the situation then goes from worse to tragic. It went from bad to worse. Now it's worse to tragic. So with his plans thwarted, the Pharaoh then turns to a far more sinister course. Reading from verse 15, The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, The first whose name was Shipra, and the second whose name was Pua, When you help the Hebrew women give birth, Observe them as they deliver. If the child is a son, kill him. But if it's a daughter, she may live. Turning from slavery to slaughter, The king orders these two midwives To murder baby boys. Now you can't get much lower than that, right? Not only did he not did he have the cowardice to not to to, to ask other people to do his dirty work for him, but he was asking these Hebrew midwives to do this to their own babies, to their own people's babies, to Hebrew babies, to Hebrew mums and dads, to big brothers and big sisters. You see, the job that these midwives had was to facilitate the safe arrival of bub whilst protecting Mum as well. That's an incredible task. That's an incredible thing. We were incredibly fortunate and blessed to have really safe birthing, um, birth stories for our kids, and watching the midwives at work was an unbelievable gift. We had these wonderful midwives, and they were just incredible women who just helped They just loved us. They cared for us. What an incredible profession. We've got some midwives here with us this morning. I take my hat off to midwives. An incredible profession. And here, they were being asked to stop doing that work. They were being asked to destroy the very thing that they were called to protect. This king, and this is really important for us to to understand the rest of Exodus, This king had made himself an enemy to life itself. This king had made himself an enemy to life. When God brought forth life and commanded his creation to be fruitful and to multiply, this king stood at that fountain and tried to cut it off at the stem. But praise God for these two midwives, Shipra and Puah. Praise God for them. Incredible women, right? I'm so glad we get to hear their names. I'm so glad that we get to find out who these women were because in verse 17 it says, The midwives, however, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this and let the boys live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, and, and I love this, the Hebrew women are not like the, like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous, and they give birth before the midwife can get to them. Oh, it's cheeky, right? <laughs> like it's, and brave. So much bravery there. See, the important thing for these midwives is that they feared God and not the Pharaoh. And that's what gave them their bravery. See, if that king was willing to kill these babies, then certainly he would be willing to kill these women too. These two incredible women, however, however, stood up to Pharaoh's horrible plans. And next week, as we go into chapter 2, we're going to read of three three other women who similarly defied this king. They stood up to him, and his plans were thwarted once again. And in verse 20, we read of that same extension of hope. So God was good to the midwives and the people multiplied and became very numerous. Since the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So once again in this deteriorating situation, God's people continued to multiply. They continued to become very numerous. God is faithful and we can trust him with everything. Now just as we study that bit, and this is a bit of a sidebar, this brings us, this brings into light the difficult path that we have to walk as the people of God, who both, we have God as our king, and yet we live in this world where there are structures of human government and power. The Bible is really clear to us that the governments that lead us have been put in place by God, and we are to submit to them as people who are freed up to serve them, and who are freed from sin. So in Second Peter, and this is just, sorry, First Peter, and this is just one time in the Bible where it says this. There are others. Peter writes to the church in First Peter chapter two, verse thirteen to seventeen. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority, or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Listen to this. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honour everyone. Love the brothers and sisters. Fear God. Honour the Emperor. Scripture is very clear that we ought to submit to and, and honour the, the governments that have been put into in place by God Himself. And yet there are also times in the Bible where God where the Bible gives us a precedent to disobey governing authorities. Like in Acts, 5, in Acts five, where this same Peter stood up to the authorities who had commanded him, the apostles, to stop teaching in the name of Jesus. In Acts chapter five, verse 29, Peter says, "We must obey God rather than men." Or here in Exodus, where the authorities compel God's people to do something that is clearly evil. Friends, if our government explicitly asks us or attempts to stop God's people from proclaiming the gospel or teaching the truths of God's word, or if we are compelled to do something that is clearly an evil and ungodly act, then we ought to, like these two incredible women, fear God and not man, and say no. So these, three, so three times the promises of God are threatened, and three times God prevails. But one final blow was to come, and this is where things go from tragic to horrifying. Went from bad to worse, from worse to hot to tragic, now from tragic to horrifying. Reading from verse 22, Pharaoh then commanded all his people, you must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile, but let every daughter live. So by placing this horrible task into the hands of his people, Pharaoh was implicating the entire nation in this horrible act. You can imagine the desperation. You can imagine the fear. You can imagine the suspicion. You can imagine the deep paranoia at work that Egypt would have been steeped in here. And even though the last three difficulties for God's people were met with these promises, met with this reminder of God fulfilling His promises, every time it's been difficult, it said, but the people began to multiply, the people began to be fruitful and to increase in number. It doesn't say that here. And that's because, that's not because there was no reply. It's actually that God's reply begins in chapter 2. God's reply is that he is sovereign over all things. God holds all of the strings and his response to this measure of evil was to raise up a redeemer who would bring about justice and liberty and lead his people out of slavery and towards God so that they could worship and glorify God forever. Things go from tragic to horrifying and God's response to this final and horrible blow from Pharaoh was not mere multiplication, it was liberation. And as we look into this next week, God is going to raise up a Redeemer who will judge Egypt, who will bring God's judgment upon Egypt and free his people. And what this story does is it points us towards another Redeemer who was raised up in similar scenes of death and tragedy. You see, when Jesus was born, King Herod was threatened. And after ascertaining ascertaining the time and the place of of Jesus' birth, he ordered that all of the baby boys under two years old in the town of Bethlehem should be killed. And ironically, God sent Mary and Joseph and their baby son Jesus to Egypt for protection. It's ironic, right? It's crazy. Moses was God's reply to the evil oppression of God's people in Egypt. And, and Jesus is God's reply to the evil oppression of God's people by sin. You see, God looked at us in our sinful state with things getting from bad to worse to tragic to horrifying in our own hearts and he sent a redeemer to save us. And Jesus came and he was crucified on a cross. And he bore our guilt and he bore our shame and he took God's wrath against sin upon his own shoulders so that you and I would be spared. And instead of receiving God's judgment, we instead receive his righteousness. And uh, and God's judgment goes upon Jesus and we receive his righteousness. and, and And that is all for the purpose of bringing us into a right relationship with God, bringing us to the Father's side, bringing us into a relationship with God where we can worship him and praise him and serve him forever so the question now that we've got to ask is what are we waiting on god for what is the thing that we are we've been waiting for and praying for and seeking for maybe we've been waiting and praying and seeking for the salvation of a loved one and we're wondering if god is actually hearing our prayers Maybe we're waiting and praying and seeking the salvation of some long-held desire, a good thing even, and we're wondering if God really cares about us. Maybe we've been, maybe we've been waiting and praying and seeking and asking God for our, to be rescued from a certain situation, and we're wondering if God really cares or if he'll ever answer. If that's you, can I just point us to a couple of things that we need to always remember, and this is far more important than we might think, The first thing is this, God has already acted in history to send his son Jesus Christ to deal with our greatest problem, to our our greatest need. He sent his son Jesus Christ to remove our sin from us and in case we aren't aware of this, our sin is the biggest problem that we've got going on right now. And I don't say that lightly. I don't say that to try and make light of whatever you're walking through, because whatever you're walking through, I know for a lot of you, is really painful, really difficult. Some of us are carrying some very, very heavy burdens. And we've got to remember the gospel that Jesus has lifted the worst burden, the heaviest burden, from our shoulders. That is the burden of sin which separates us from God. That is our biggest problem that we've got to face. And secondly... God continues to act for his glory and our good. And he is using the situations that we walk through to make us more and more like Jesus. As difficult and as tough as they are, God works all things together for the good of those who love him. If God seems to be delaying in his answer to you, it's not because he's slow, it's not because he doesn't care, it's not because he's busy with other things or with people that he deems to be more important. He absolutely does care. The Apostle Peter writes this, and we started our service with this at the beginning. Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to your repentance. Friends, the work of Jesus Christ helps us to see That throughout all of history, God has been bringing bringing about the greatest redemption of his people from the worst of all oppressors, which is sin. And my hope and my prayer is that as we continue to grow in our faith, as we continue to grow in our knowledge of the Lord, we will come to understand the incredible perspective that the gospel gives us. That whatever is going on right now, God is faithful to us. God is faithful. He, his timing is perfect. He loves us and we can trust him with everything. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us,